this Advent season, we've been using the wreath, the Advent wreath, and we're considering four wonderful truths as they relate to the first coming of Christ, what we celebrate at Christmas. Uh, Last week, we, we looked at God's love, and we saw it as the motivating force behind the decision of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit before He ever created that Jesus the Son would come as Redeemer, as Savior, as the sin bearer. The second truth that we're exploring today is that of peace. Peace is a major theme throughout Scripture. It appears more than 80 times. Uh, So I want us to think a little bit about what peace means, particularly from a biblical perspective. Uh, Let me begin with what peace is not. It's always good sometimes to see from the negative. First of all, it's not just the absence of hostility. Uh, It's much more than just the absence of conflict. It's not the absence of hassle. You know, all I want is peace and quiet. It's not the absence of activity. Well, I have peace if I can just slow down, if I can go on vacation. It's also not the absence of lawlessness. You know, if we can just establish law and order, then we're going to have peace. Nor is it just the absence of life. Walk through a cemetery and observe all those who are resting in peace. In other words, peace is neither just a state of mind nor circumstances. It's something else. It's something far more penetrating, something far more profound, far more encompassing. Now, the Old Testament word for peace is shalom. The word often used as a greeting or as a uh, a blessing. Look at this instruction that comes in the Old Testament book of Numbers chapter 6. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron and his sons to bless the people of Israel with this special blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you shalom. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. The basic idea of shalom is wholeness or completeness. It it speaks of a sense of well-being in our entire lives. Augustine in the 4th century defined peace this way. Peace is the tranquility of order. Biblical peace is is an ordered and orderly inner life. It's one of wholeness and of harmony and of completeness. As we consider the meaning of the coming of Jesus, the Prince of Peace, I want us this morning to look at peace in four different spheres or different aspects. First, we need to talk about peace with God, then the peace of God, and followed with peace with ourselves, and then peace with others. These are all things that are secured by God through Christ for those who put their trust in Him and are walking with Him. So we have to start with peace with God. Why why there? I think it's because it's the most foundational need that we have in life. It's a relationship. It's peace with our Creator. You know, the Bible pulls no punches. It paints a grim picture of the relationship between created and the Creator. 
in Romans 5.10, Paul describes us as enemies of God apart from Christ. Yeah, I know it sounds a little severe, but you see, in fact, we come into this world uh, in this state. This is the effects of us being born in the line of Adam and bearing the consequences of his disobedience. Look at the description that Paul gives in his letter to Ephesians. In chapter 2, he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This nature might be expressed in active, uh, open rebellion against God, or maybe just passive indifference towards God. But at its core, it has to do with our legal standing before God. Every person arrives on this planet under the judgment of God, under his condemnation, all just. But as a result, Scripture says that a state of war exists between sinner and God. And this is where the wonderful truth of the gospel comes in. This is the message of Christmas. This is why Jesus came. And God did something about our problem that we could do nothing about. Paul goes on in that passage in Ephesians 2 and says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Now there's a biblical concept, a word, that comes to play in this aspect of our salvation. It's the word reconciliation. Look at Paul's explanation in Colossians 1. For in him that is Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The word reconciliation comes from the Latin. It means to bring a person into friendly relations to or with oneself or another after estrangement. In the Greek language of the New Testament, the word means to change completely. So we begin to understand then that reconciliation is a work of God whereby the sinner is brought from a position of being an enemy to a position of being a friend. There's this radical change in orientation. Through Christ, God deals with the cause of our estrangement from Him, our sin. And the consequence or the result of this is a complete change in our legal standing before God. There are two amazing implications of this change. The first is that there is no condemnation. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Some of you need to move that truth from your head to your heart. There is no condemnation if you're in Christ. The second thing is peace with God. A standing in grace, a glorious future. Look at this from Romans 5. Paul says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through him we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. This passage in Romans 5 arrives at the end of, of, of what Paul does in chapters 1, 2, and 3. 
He really plays the role of a prosecuting attorney and he takes all of mankind before the judgment of God to make the case against them. He begins with the heathen, the pagan. Everybody knows they're only worthy of, of condemnation, so he takes him before the judgment of bar of God and God hands down the sentence, guilty. Then he takes the moralist, the one who would say, I'm not like the pagan, I live a good life takes him before the judgment bar of God, presents the case against him, and the, the supreme judge of the universe says, guilty. Then he takes the religionist, the religion person, who says, yeah, but I've got religion, I've got all of that, takes him before the judgment bar of God. They're standing in front of God, and God declares them to be guilty. And then in chapter 3, he begins to introduce this concept that through Christ's death, we can be made right with God. So he comes here to this passage, and he says, having been justified by faith, that is declared in the right, righteous, we have peace with God. And that little word with is such a significant word in the language of the New Testament. It means facing or face to face. In other words, now because we have believed in Christ and God has declared us not guilty, as we face the judge, he declares us not guilty in the right. That all comes about because of reconciliation so this is the starting place for peace it's only possible because of jesus first coming having established peace with god now we can experience the peace of god you know millions of dollars are spent each year trying to purchase peace peace is as is one of the most common desires sought by those who go to therapy who go to counseling the English novelist H.G. Wells wrote, The time has come to reorganize my life. I cry out. I cannot adjust my life to secure any fruitful peace. Here I am at 64, still seeking peace. It is a hopeless dream. How sad. But it's nothing new. Epictetus was a Greek philosopher born in AD 55, died in 135 AD. He said this, while the emperor may give peace from war on land and sea, he is unable to give peace from passion, grief, and envy. He cannot even give peace of heart for which man yearns more than even for outward peace. So where does this peace come from? Well, the Apostle Paul identifies this kind of peace as fruit that's produced by the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. So in Galatians chapter 5, he says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. So how do we acquire this peace? How, how, does, how does it ripen in our lives? Let me suggest several things. First, there is peace in believing. Look what Paul has to say about this connection between peace and believing from Romans 15. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. What does peace have to do with believing? Well, for one thing, it has to do with the assurance of your future. Our believing is grounded in the truth of God's word, all of his promises. And one of the greatest fears that people experience is right up there with the fear of public speaking is the fear of death. What happens after the grave? But for believers, that fear is put to rest. Now, while we may fear the process of death, the outcome of death should be of no concern. 
If the Bible is true, death ushers us into the very presence of God. And that's the confident assurance we have of that truth in our lives. The second thing is, I would suggest is peace in righteousness. There's an interesting connection in Scripture between righteousness and peace. Let me sample a couple of passages from the Old Testament. Psalm 85, the psalmist says, Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground. Righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and the land will yield its increase. From Isaiah 32, Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be shalom, and the result of righteousness, quietness, and truth forever. What is righteousness? It essentially means in the right. It's a life characterized by those things that are right in the sight of God. So when our lives are right, when they conform to God's standard on how we ought to live, one of the byproducts is peace. This inner sense of tranquility and order. Think about the state of your mind when you know that you're in the wrong. When you've done something wrong. Don't you find yourself anxious? Aren't you kind of bugged by those questions? Will I be found out? Who knows? How can I deal with this? But when our heart is confidently right before God, we experience God's peace. Here's another one, peace in obedience. When we do what is right, when we obey God and live according to his standard, we can experience this peace of God in our lives. Uh, Psalm 119 says, Those who love your instructions have great peace and do not stumble. From the book of Proverbs chapter 3, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and what? Shalom. They will add to you. So God's laid out a game plan, a roadmap, a, a guidebook in order to tell us what kind of a life pleases Him. You know, can we expect to experience God's peace if we go off the rails? and live any way that we want to? Do we think that the blessings of inner peace and tranquility is ours when we're disobedient to the way that God wants us to live? You know, the answer is a resounding no, of course not. It comes with the territory. And then there's peace in wisdom. Uh, look at this passage coming out of Proverbs chapter 3. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom, the one who gets understanding, for the gain from her is better than gain from silver and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness and all her paths are what? Shalom. Now sometimes wisdom is just plain common sense. It's using the sound mind that God has given to us to make right decisions, to conduct ourselves in the right way. And when you exercise that wisdom, then we can expect the peace of God in the inner life to accompany right choices in life. Other times, wisdom is just uncommon sense. 
Chuck Swindoll makes this statement, I think that captures the idea well when he writes, wisdom is the God-given ability to see life with rare objectivity and to handle life with rare stability. It is to see life and choices with clarity, with a discriminating eye, an eye that puts everything into proper focus and perspective. And then it's the ability to live out that life with stability and consistency and constancy. So when we exercise godly wisdom, we think in a godly way. And we live and make godly choices in godly actions. But God's peace then abides in the one who does that according to this wisdom. And let me suggest lastly, there's peace in prayer. This is a critical key to understanding the peace of God. Look at this perspective. Probably familiar verses, but let's just put it into this context. Coming from Philippians chapter 4. Paul says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Two key requirements from those verses. One is you have to take your concerns to God. It doesn't work if you just decide you're going to buck it up, if you're going to go on your own and trust in what you can do, if you're going to carry your burdens by yourself. It just won't work. You need to take them to the one who deeply loves you and cares about you. So it's an exchange. I take my concerns to God and I receive his peace. Second is thanksgiving must accompany your prayers of concern. It's a way of acknowledging God's grace, his wisdom, his sovereignty, his purposes and ways in my life. And so when I come to him in prayer with these concerns, then what I do is I choose to trust him in the midst of my circumstances and I thank him that he is ultimately in control, that there are other things beyond the things of this life. It isn't just that I mouth a quick prayer to God. I have to trust him in the midst of my difficulties. And part of the expression of that trust is giving thanks, thanksgiving. Paul says that when we pray about everything with thanksgiving, his peace, a peace that is virtually beyond our ability to understand or comprehend will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That word guard is a military term. It's the picture of a, of a sentry, a guard, who's marching back and forth in front of the post, securing the post. That's what God's peace does. It's how it operates in our hearts and minds. It, it comes in and it guards our hearts and it protects us from fears of anxiety and uncertainty and even despair. Now, before leaving the subject of the peace of God, I, I want to add some context to this. Peace does not negate the struggle of circumstances. It does not deny our circumstances and the struggle nor does it eliminate necessarily the struggle and circumstances. What it does is it transcends the struggle. It transcends the difficulties. It calms our hearts and our minds in the midst of the struggle. Let me take you back in the Old Testament. Remember the story of Daniel? It's back in the mid-6th century B.C. 
Darius, king of the Medes, is encouraged by high government officials to establish a law that anyone who prayed to a god other than to him should be thrown into the lion's den. And these co-conspirators there who were motivated by a jealousy of Daniel who held one of the top positions in Darius's administration. Daniel would not be deterred from his usual habit of praying to the God of Israel. And he's caught in this trap. And interestingly in the text, to the deep dismay of the king himself, Daniel is thrown into the den of lions. But God, remember, we, there's actually a song we could sing, but we won't, about being in the lion's den. But God shuts the mouth of the lions. And I think Daniel sleeps like a baby all night long. On the other hand, the king paced throughout the night. The biblical record says that his sleep fled from him. What a contrast. Daniel's in the lion's den experiencing the peace of God, while Darius is in the safety of his palace, tormented all night long. You see, here's the point. God didn't deliver Daniel from the lion's den. He delivered him through the lion's den. And he gave him his peace through that all. Now, let's talk about peace with ourselves. There, there's a peace that we have with ourselves that's important for us to consider. George Simenon was the most published novelist in the 20th century. Uh, he wrote well over 400 novels, often finishing a book in a mere nine days. If you're an author out there, just imagine. Late in life, he wrote this. I have only one ambition left, to be completely at peace with myself. I doubt if I shall ever manage it. I do not think it is possible for anyone. It's not a question of money, for that kind of happiness must come from within yourself. I do not know any man, however successful, who is completely happy. I write because if I did not, I should die. Let me suggest a couple of reasons, maybe why we don't experience peace with ourselves, within ourselves. One is guilt. When we know we've done something wrong, whether it's in our thinking or in our actions. And the second reason may be because we have an inadequate self-image. That is, we really don't know or believe what God thinks of us or says of us. So here's what we have to consider. In relation to our guilt, this wonderful invitation we have to come to our Heavenly Father who loves us and to confess our sins simply means to agree with God about our sins and then to experience his forgiveness. Uh, you know, it's, it's believing the fact that God has paid for every sin I will ever commit. His blood covers it all. That's the purpose of his first coming. And then related to understanding who we are in Christ, we need to remember we are God's child if we believed in him. This is the one who, who loves us dearly, who, who has declared us forgiven, who's declared that we stand in the right. That as we stand facing this judge, his verdict is not guilty. Your destiny is settled in heaven. Now one other aspect of peace, that's peace with others. First of all, look at Paul's description of God's work through Christ and its implications within the church. Uh, Paul writes in Ephesians 2, For he himself, Jesus, is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. 
Now, in this case, the division was between Jew and Gentile. Could there be peace between them in the formation of the church, Christ's body? And the answer was yes. There should be no division between believers who comprise the church because Jesus himself has broken down the barrier of the dividing wall. So then there are some obligations that come to us. Paul writes to the Romans describing the responsibilities we have within the church. In Romans 14, he says, So then let us pursue peace, what makes for peace, pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. James, in his New Testament letter, says, And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So God says that we are to live in peace with one another as believers. We are to seek those things that unite us, not divide. Those things that build up, not tear down. Now, in relation to those who are not believers, then our duty as a follower of Christ is to seek peace with all of those with whom we encounter. Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The requirement in the New Testament is that in our lives we will seek peace whenever it is within our power to do so. And so Paul writes, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. You notice in the verse the limits on our peacemaking? Because our responsibility ends where the other person begins. Now, just a word of caution. This doesn't mean that peace is the highest value with others. It doesn't mean that we dump truth in order to be at peace. I, I like the way Martin Luther said it. Peace if possible, truth at any rate. So truth will always trump the peace. But we will do everything that we can. And then it's how we do it as we relate to those even in this area of truth. Peace with God. The peace of God. Peace with others and peace with ourselves. Let me conclude this morning with a couple summary thoughts. What's required if we're going to experience peace in our lives? Number one, keep trusting. Keep trusting. Look at this word that comes from the prophet Isaiah. You will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you, all whose thoughts are fixed on you. Trust in the Lord always, for the Lord God is the eternal rock. God's peace will be your experience if you will just keep on trusting. Second, keep talking. Keep the lines of communication open with God. Pray to Him about everything. I want to go back to those verses out of Philippians 4 as I wrap it up. Look at this. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence and anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Here it is. If we pray right, if we think right, 
if we live right, the peace of God will guard us and the God of peace will guide us. Hey, that's a great deal, isn't it? That's what he brings to us. That's part of the meaning of Christmas. The love of God and the peace of God and all that entails. Well, as we wrap up this morning, um, next week we go on and we talk about another great concept that comes out of the Christmas story and something for us as well, and that's going to be joy. Um, we need joy in our lives. We just stand as I close in prayer, and I'm going to let Vic and Subi go out and be in the foyer, and if you'd like to chat with them about the ministry in the jail, I would invite you to do that. But let's pray as we close. Father, thank you that you sent the Prince of Peace to come to earth to die for us. Uh, we know that peace isn't the highest value. We know that Jesus said he came to set a sword between people. That's the message of the gospel that separates people. But in the midst of that, he brings ultimate peace. He brings the peace that comes with you as we stand facing you, our judge. And because of Christ, you declare us not guilty. We thank you for the peace of God that can flood our hearts and minds even in the midst of difficult trials. Lord, I pray today, if there are some that are really struggling with life issues, would you flood their heart and soul with your peace as they trust in you through all of that. And Lord, that we might have peace within ourselves and then when we're at peace with ourselves, being at peace with others. But we thank you so much for this Prince of Peace who came for us, each of us individually. May the spirit of Christmas fill our hearts each day during this Advent season. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Have a great week, everyone.